Sunday just so happens to fall on Halloween Day. And so I thought it would be really fitting, since it is Halloween, to talk about spirits, and specifically spirits that are found in the Bible, and what exactly they are, and, and how they work. So that's what we're going to be doing today, because spirits doesn't have to be a taboo subject to talk about, and it really shouldn't be something that's a mystery either. It shouldn't be mysterious. It should be something that we are still able to understand, even if we're not able to see them. Kind of like how wind works, where we can't see wind, but we are still able to understand how it works. Um, when it comes to spirits, it should be that same way, where yeah, maybe we're not seeing angels and demons walking around, but we should still be able to understand their nature. So that's what we're going to talk about today is biblical spirits and understanding what they are and how they operate. So before we get into things like angels and demons, let's begin by talking about our own spirit. So mankind was made in the image of God, and just as how God is made up of the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mankind is also made up of a Trinity-type formation of the body, the spirit, and the soul. And so when I describe these things, I talk about how the body is that physical body that we can see, um, just like how the sun is the physical manifestation of God. And then the soul of a person is kind of the eternal quality of them, just like how the Father brings the eternal quality of God into the Trinity. Our soul is the part that makes it so that when we die, that we don't just disappear. It's that piece of us that then continues to live on after this world and on to the next of either in heaven with God or the alternative of hell. And then that final piece of the person is their spirit, and that's their personality. It's kind of the individual quality of that person. And so it's important for us to understand that our spirit and our body, although they work together to make up who we are with our soul, that they are separate things. And that's important because that means that when our physical body dies, that our spirit, because it is still joined with the eternal quality that comes from our soul, is able to continue to live on after the body goes away. And uh, one of the wonderful things that we see in Scripture is that we won't always continue to live without a physical form because Jesus will actually give us a new body in heaven. And we see that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where it says our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So it's talking about when we go to heaven that we aren't going to have the same physical body we, ha we have now. We will have a new body that is like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. So what is that body of Jesus Christ like? Well, one of the best examples of it is seen in Luke chapter 24 verses 36 through 43 says, while the disciples were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. 
He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see, that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So Jesus did this. He showed up amidst the disciples when they were sitting in a room that was locked. The doors were locked, um, and all of a sudden Jesus just appeared to be standing among them which is an incredible thing. That's not something that a normal physical body can do. And if we want to get really specific and complicated about it, my belief is that uh, the new physical body that we have goes is a body that goes beyond the third dimension and into the fourth dimension. So that uh, and, and that's what would make it kind of look like he just appeared out of nowhere if Jesus had a fourth dimensional body and was entering into a three-dimensional uh, room. And that's just kind of my theory on how that works. But regardless of how exactly that works, it's very clear that Jesus's physical body was different than the bodies of the, uh, the rest of the disciples who were there. And so the body that we're promised to have in heaven is said to be like that body that Jesus had after he died and was resurrected. And so it's going to be a, a new, different body. And when you look at this, not only do you see that Jesus was able to appear in the midst of him, but he was also able to still eat some fish. And this is really exciting for me because when you think about uh, the things that Jesus was able to do with this new body that he had, as well as, you know, this being the body that we will have in heaven, and in heaven there is no pain or death— what we can then conclude from these things is that the new body that we have will have physical benefits without physical restraints. So we will still be able to eat, we will still be able to walk around and be seen by other peoples, we will still have all of the benefits of having a physical body, but without any of the restraints that tend to come from physical bodies, like not being able to, ju to just show up somewhere. Or, you know, uh, dying of old age and getting old rickety bones and all of that. So none of those restraints, none of the downsides, and all of the positives. And you can't really beat a deal, with, a deal like that. And so when we know that that is where our spirit is headed, to that kind of new physical vessel that God is going to prepare for us, and Jesus is going to give us that new body, and that is where our spirit and soul are going to transfer from one body to the next, it really kind of takes away the steam of physical death. Because you know that this body uh, is temporary, this earth isn't our home, and so when we die here on earth, we then go into heaven with God. Our spirit remains, our soul remains, and we are given a new body that is way better than the one we have now. And when you know that everyone who has received salvation from Christ, that you have that waiting for you, you really don't have to fear any kind of physical death at all.
So that is kind of uh, the condition of our own spirit. So now let's go ahead and talk about other spiritual beings. Uh, So we'll begin by talking about angels. Now there are lots of different things that we can see in scripture about angels. First of all, we can see that angels are stronger than people, than humans. Uh, That can be seen in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. So that makes it clear, angels stronger and more powerful. But although they are stronger than us, angels don't have authority over us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul asks this question. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Which is such a mind-blowing concept to me that in heaven, humans will be judging angels. So even though they are stronger than us, angels don't have any kind of authority over us. And because they don't have that authority. What I want us to see from that is that spiritual beings like angels are not superior beings. Yes, they may be stronger, they may be more powerful, but that in itself doesn't make them superior to us. They don't have authority over us, and in fact, we in heaven will have authority over them, given to us from God. So just because a being is spiritual doesn't mean that it is superior, and we see that with angels. And so then we can look at some of the reasons on why angels are not superior to us. Well, one of the things that shows us that they are not superior to us, and the reasoning why, is because angels are also creatures that were created by God. So angels didn't just always exist. Angels are not Uh, gods themselves. They're not mini-gods or anything like that. They are also beings who have been created by God. Uh, That can be seen in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this scripture, when it's talking about all the things that have been created by God, includes things in heaven, visible and invisible. So that tells us that angels who dwell in heaven were also created by God. And so that puts their authority on the same level as ours, uh, where we have both been created by God. And not only were angels just also created by God, but they, uh, they actually serve God alongside of us, showing again that they are not on a higher level than us. They are not superior to us because they are serving God right alongside with us. That can be seen in Revelation chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. It says, Then the angel said to me, this was John writing it, the disciple John, 
Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So when John fell at this angel's feet to worship him, the angel said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant along with you. So then we may ask ourselves, well, how do the angels uh, serve God? What is it that they do? Uh, one of the biggest things that angels do is, of course, protect us. That can be seen in Psalm chapter 91, verse 11. For he, talking about God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So God actually commands his angels to guard us and to protect us. And this is where the concept of uh, guardian angels come from. And there's actually a couple other verses where the concept of guardian angels comes from. But when you actually look at each of those different references about uh, angels guarding and protecting others, uh, this is just kind of a fun fact, a fun little trivia for you is that in those verses and throughout scripture, there is actually no clear definitive proof about guardian angels existing in the sense that we think of them, where each person has their own guardian angel that is there solely to protect them. That idea of the guardian angel, um, it, it doesn't... The, I won't say it doesn't exist, but there's simply no definitive proof that they do. It can be argued that they do. It can be argued that they don't. We're really not sure one way or the other. Um, so I don't want to dwell on that too much. It's just kind of a fun little piece of information uh, for those of you out there listening to be aware of. There's, there's really no clear proof that guardian angels exist, at least in the sense that uh, it's a one-on-one -on -one thing because scripture, you know, like I just read, God does command his angels to guard and protect us, um, but it's not necessarily a one guardian angel per person type situation. In fact, uh, there was one person that described it as, uh, in sports terms, it's a zone defense instead of a man-to-man -man defense. And I think that's a great, you know, I'm not much of a sports person, but that illustration, I think, works really well for describing uh, probably what it is more of how angels protect us. But that's one of the ways that they serve God is in protecting us. So the main point, though, that I want us to uh, focus on and see from this is that angels, those spiritual beings of angels, are not superior beings. And this is really important for us to understand because that then applies to fallen angels as well, more commonly known as demons. Demons are not superior beings because they are fallen angels and angels are not superior beings. Whether they be angels or demons, no spiritual beings are superior to us. And this becomes even more powerful of a point when you realize that Satan himself 
is also a fallen angel. And that can be seen in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 16. It says, through your, your widespread... Ah, sorry, through your widespread trade, you, talking about Satan, were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. So there Satan is referred to as a guardian cherub, and a cherub is... Uh, one of the types of angels. There's cherubim, seraphim, uh, living creatures. Uh, those are all different types of angels. Again, I don't have enough time to go into each and every one of those things. But that passage in Ezekiel shows us that Satan is also a fallen angel. And that is super important because that means that Satan's power is limited. Satan has the exact same limitations that any other angel has. Because he is simply a fallen angel. So then we can look at some of the limitations that angels have and, and you know, through correlation, understand that those apply to Satan as well. So in doing so, we can see that Satan is not omnipresent which is a quality of God, where God can be everywhere at once. Satan is not able to be everywhere at once, because angels can't be everywhere at once. That can be seen in Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. It says, Then the angel continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So in this passage in Daniel, we have an instance of where an angel was trying to get from God to Daniel, but was detained in a place for a time. And then another angel, Michael, had to come to his aid and stay there fighting so that this angel could get to Daniel. So that shows very clearly that angels are limited to only being in one place at a time. They cannot be everywhere at once. They cannot even be in two places at once. They can only be in one place at a time. And again, Satan is a fallen angel, and this limitation applies to him as well. He is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. Another limitation that Satan has is that he cannot attack our spirit directly. That is seen so clearly in the story of Job, where Job was the most righteous man living at this time, and Satan wanted to bring him down and get him to deny and rebel against God to show that even the most righteous person would 
would turn away from God if God stopped blessing them. And so God that did allow Satan to attack Job. And in his attacks against Job, he only attacked him by taking away what belonged to him, taking away uh, his flocks, taking away his children. And when that didn't work, he then went to attack his flesh and gave him boils all over his skin. So we can see in even his greatest attacks against Job that it was limited to the physical realm. He was not able to attack Job's spirit directly. And what I mean by that was he was not able to make Job denounce God. He could not influence Job's mind to make him denounce God. The best that he could do was attack Job attack Job's spirit indirectly through physical things because he was not able to directly influence Job's spirit. He could not take control of Job because Job belonged to God. And so when we also belong to God, Satan is limited in that capacity as well where he cannot attack our spirit directly, is limited then to only indirect physical assaults against us, to try to mess with our mind that way. Another really comforting thing about the limit of Satan's power is that Satan's eternal fate is already decided and sealed. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, we see the final end result of Satan. It says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This book of Revelation describes future events, and so we can see that this is the fate that Satan is going to end up in. His fate is field. His fate, fate is field. His fate is sealed. His destiny is decided. There is no escape for him. And Satan knows this. And so that is why he is doing everything he can to drag as many people down with him that he can. It doesn't matter how many people he deceives. It doesn't matter how many lives he destroys. His fate is sealed. He will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur and tormented there day and night forever and ever. And there is nothing he can do about that. Because his power is insignificant to the infinite power of God. Because he is only a created being. 
He is only a limited, fallen angel trying to stand against the eternal, almighty God. And it's that same God who loves us and not only blesses us, but gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And so that's, that spirit that is in us is far greater than the power of the enemy who stands against us. And so we don't have to fear that power that is weaker than the power that is within us. And that's stated quite clearly uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We don't have to fear Satan or his fallen angels because God's Spirit dwells within us and is far greater than our enemy. But the way that Satan tries to trick us up is by keeping these these uh, understandings of spiritual things and understanding of spirits like angels and demons and even how our own spirit works, if he can keep those things hidden from us, if he can make us think that they are just mysteries that we will never understand, then he can cause us to be fearful of those things. Because one of the greatest fears is the fear of the unknown. And so he knows that if he can trick us into thinking, well, spirits are, are that subject's kind of taboo. We, we don't want to talk about that. And, and really, there's no point talking about it because we'll never fully understand it. We can't see it. We can't understand it. Uh, and that's just how it's always going to be. If Satan can get us to believe that, then he will keep us in a place of the unknown And there he can manipulate us into feeling the fear from that unknown. Because he knows that that is human nature, to fear what is unknown. But the more we understand these things, the more we understand that our spirit is separate from our body and is going to go into a new, greater body gifted to us from Jesus. And when we understand that angels are there to protect us, not as superior beings, but as also servants of God, and far power, more powerful than we are, they protect us. And when we understand how limited Satan's power really is, the more we understand all of these spiritual things, the less we will be fearful of them. And so I pray that this message, as you have listened to it, has taken away any fear that you may have had about spiritual things and spiritual beings. And if you have any other questions about any of this or any comments that you would like to share with me, feel free to contact me either through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page or email me directly at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. And to help uh, give that understanding to others as well, 
I encourage you to share this message with other people to help get that information out into the rest of the world. But until next time, this has been another Sermon in the Pocket. I thank you for listening and pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day. Thank you.